0: Hey, good evening. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the epistle of 1 Peter, chapter 3. Now, because we weren't here last Wednesday because of Good Friday, uh, let's just back up to verse 13, 1 Peter 3, verse 13, to kind of get a running start at today's study. We're just picking up Peter's thoughts here, so we want to kind of back it up and just get a, a flavor of what he's saying. So verse 13, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, we talked about this last time. I mean, he's talking in general terms. Obviously, godly people have been martyred for the faith, but uh, he's just basically saying with regard to those in authority, government, if you do what's right, you're a good citizen, you know, you're going to be okay and even honored by the government. But verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, You are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil." as we've already pointed out, guys, when we studied those verses, uh, here Peter is making personal, practical application to our lives, again, using the example of Jesus, whom he presented earlier as the ultimate, the perfect example of someone who suffered unjustly in service to his father and yet accepted it with humility. The whole point is to encourage us to emulate, to follow in Jesus' footsteps. First uh, Peter 2.21 He said, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And then Peter continues his application by saying in uh, verse 18 of chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Let me stop there. And uh, there's a lot in this first part of this verse. So let me just break it down. Uh, first of all, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, as a Jew who lived his entire life under the Old Testament covenantal, you know, sacrificial system, of of Moses, of course, until Peter met Jesus, he lived his whole life that was a Jew under that Old Covenant sacrificial system, well, Peter knew. He knew that no animal sacrifice could be offered once that would completely cleanse a person from sin for the rest of their life. He knew that. And yet when Christ offered himself on Calvary's cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, well, he only had to offer himself once for all time and for all people. Now that's an important. I mean, it impacts a Jew more than a Gentile because they lived under that system. Imagine that you had to constantly keep bringing animal sacrifices uh, every time you sin, pretty much. I'm sure they didn't do it. Nobody could afford to do it. Okay, unless you were very wealthy. But imagine a system like that. How rigorous and burdensome. Being replaced with something that was, oh, full of grace and uh, and, and Jesus did all the work and so on. I want you to turn to Hebrews 10, because I want to read uh, just a few verses along these lines. Because the writer of the Hebrews, in part, is talking about the superiority of the New Covenant over the Old Covenant. For a lot of reasons and we studied that, we studied Hebrews. But uh, Hebrews 10, starting with verse 1, I'm going to read it out of the NLT, but the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now jump down to verse 10. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Now back up to chapter 9, starting with verse 24. For Christ did not enter into the holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God in our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now once for all time he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. In other words, he's coming to fully redeem us. We've been redeemed in our soul and all. He's coming again to redeem our body, Romans 8. We're waiting for the day when we are glorified. We have the glorified body is what he's talking about. Now, guys, for those who are skeptical about how one man could die for all the sins ever committed by every person that ever lived, well, Paul picks that up because he anticipated that when he was presenting his teachings in the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 17 Paul said, For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is simple. Look, for you skeptics or critics of Christianity who can't imagine how one man could die for the sins of everybody for all time. Well, it was one man, Adam, who blew it for all of us, right? His one sin caused sin to spread throughout the entire world. Every one of us born of Adam was were born with a sin nature. And if a, a man, Adam, could blow it for the whole human race, why can't one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, by grace, rectify all that? Pay for the sins of everyone who has ever lived, having offered himself once for all. That's, that's just, you know, the idea there. But he goes on to say in uh, chapter 3:18, talking about Jesus Christ dying for us, the just, he said, for the unjust. The just for the unjust. Of course, the idea here is that under the law of Moses, an animal sacrifice had to be without spot or blemish, or in other words, perfect, if it was going to be accepted by God to atone for sin. And this also had to be true of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He had to be sinless, if His sacrifice for sin was going to be acceptable to God the Father, and for Jesus to, you know, to be a, a, the sacrifice for our sins, He had to be perfect. Which means, first of all, He had to be born without sin, the sin of Adam, which was transferred down to all of us through our fathers. Right? In Adam, all die; not in Eve all die, but in Adam, the father passes down the sin nature to the child. Well, Jesus had to be born without a sin nature, number one, original sin, which God the Father uh, did by allowing Mary to bear the Christ child without any kind of sexual contact. The Holy Spirit just impregnated in Mary's womb, the seed of God, and eventually Christ was born of a virgin, which meant he was one of us because he was born of a Human woman. His mother was human, of course, but he had no earthly father. God the Father was his father, therefore, he was born of a virgin and therefore sinless. And then, of course, he lived his whole life. Uh, in a, he lived a sinless life until the day he died, and uh, all. But um, it was the only way he could die for our sins. That's why, again, sinners can't die for sinners. Uh, it takes the innocent dying for the guilty. The just dying for the unjust, as Peter put it. And again, that was the only way he could have been born sinless was by a virgin birth. And the only way he could have been our substitute, died in our place. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul said, For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him again verse 18 so christ also suffered once for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to god now the phrase bring us to god is a technical term that basically means to usher into the presence of a dignitary or king uh, in those days and i'll just read to you what one author said he said the verb translated he might bring expresses the specific purpose of Jesus' actions. It often describes someone being introduced or given access to another. In classical Greek, the noun form refers to the one making the introduction. In ancient uh, courts, certain officials controlled access to the king. They verified someone's right to see the king and then introduced that person to the monarch or to the king. Christ now performs that function for believers." End quote. And the idea was, guys, that sin opened up a gigantic rift between God and man. Man originally created in perfect fellowship with God. God came down the cool of the day in the garden to fellowship with Adam and Eve. Uh, Beautiful oneness, fellowship. Of course, sin, when they both sinned, uh, they they fell. Uh, Their fellowship with God was broken. And they, as as, uh, God said to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 59, your sins have separated you from me. And that was the predicament we found ourselves in. A giant gulf had opened up called sin, which separated us from God. But the blood of Christ reconciled us. It satisfied God's righteousness. That's what's called propitiation. It satisfied God's righteousness because someone died. People that don't understand the character of God sometimes have a real problem. I'm talking about unbelievers as you witness to them. um, How that Jesus had to die. Well, I just have to die. Why didn't God just forgive everybody? Well, see, that's how we operate. But that's not how a holy God can operate. Sin has to be paid for. And if we don't pay, and if we pay, the Bible says we will go into uh, hell for eternity to pay off the sins we commit in this life. It's either we spend eternity paying for our own sins in hell, or we accept the payment that Jesus gave for us on the cross. Who, uh, whose death on the cross propitiated the Father's righteousness uh, and provided a way by which we might have access to God. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2. First of all, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. And of course, the context there is he's talking to Gentiles who were never near God. The Jewish people, at least, they had a covenant with God. So they were nearer. But it applies to any unsaved person, Jew or Gentile. We were once afar off from God, separated from God, but the blood of Christ has brought us near. In other words, fellowship. And verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And again, guys, if you're Jewish, this is an incredible thing to think about because no Jew had access to God the Father. No Jew could have that kind of relationship with God Uh, They weren't worthy to approach God. That was what the priesthood was all about. Hebrews makes a big deal about all this. They needed a go-between, a mediator. They weren't worthy to come to God directly. So they would bring their sins to the priest along with their sacrifice. The priest would offer the sacrifice, go into the holy place, pray for them. God would basically accept the sacrifice, pronounce a blessing, and they would go out and pronounce the blessing upon the individual. The priest was a constant reminder that they were not worthy to come directly to God. But in the new covenant, all of that changed. Remember how the very moment Jesus bowed his head, dismissed his spirit, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying it was God tearing it open and saying, you know what, now anyone who believes in my son is a priest in the sense you all have, are worthy to have access to me directly. Uh, Hebrews 4, remember uh, verses 14 to 16, we have bold access into his presence. We don't have to come uh, timid or fearful. We can. Come, the high priest entered into God's presence, the holy of holies, once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. But he entered very timidly and fearfully because if there was any sin in his heart, soul, that was not really dealt with, God would strike him on the spot. For the high priest, the day of Yom Kippur was not a happy time. Okay. It was not a joyful time. You think, boy, you got to go into the presence of God. Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of fear with that. But we don't have to come scared timidly by coming to God's presence. Am I going to get struck at We can come boldly because Jesus took care of all our sins. They're all under his blood, right? Uh, And for a Jewish person, that was incredible to think about. But back to 1 Peter 3, verse 18. That last part, let me just read it again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh. Well, of course he was. God is spirit, John 4. A spirit cannot die. But Jesus became one of us. He uh, was incarnated into a human body. And uh, a body that could be, well... Feel hunger, thirst, tiredness, pain, a body that could eventually be killed, which is what happened on the cross. But of course, then the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead uh, on the third day. Now it's interesting, as one pastor puts it: uh, here, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It also tells us that the Father raised Jesus from the dead in Romans six verse four, and it says that Jesus raised himself from the dead. John two. Verses 18 to 22, the resurrection was a a work of the triune God. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago on Sunday, how that, you know, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. Only God has the power over life and death. That was a statement of divinity. We've been studying uh, John, well, John 3 right now, but we just finished John 2 not long ago. So uh, the the resurrection was a a work of the Trinity, not just one person of the Trinity. All right, back to 1 Peter 3, verse 19, talking about the spirit made alive by the spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight souls were saved through water if peter only could have imagined when he penned these words all those years ago how much controversy they would generate maybe he would have chosen to word it a little different i don't know i know he was inspired by the holy spirit but i got to tell you these words by peter have generated over the years a good deal of controversy as to exactly what he's saying here. I'll take a swat at it and, you know, you, you, whether you, you know, maybe you agree, maybe you don't, but let me just give you my take, okay? First of all, let me say this. Some, some contend that what Peter is saying here is uh, that Jesus, after he died on the cross, he went into hell and preached the gospel to those people who died in the flood in Noah's day, giving them a second chance to be saved. Well. There are numerous and glaring problems with that interpretation. Not the least of which is that when Peter wrote this, as it is to this very day, listen to me, no one is in hell yet. Hell is the lake of fire. Nobody is in hell yet, okay? Hell is said to be uh, the lake of fire in the outer darkness. The outer darkness. At this present time, guys, all unbelievers, when they die are sent to Hades. Very different. Hades is a temporary place of incarceration in the center of the earth where they are held until they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at his great white throne judgment. You can read about that in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. But of course, Jesus spoke of Hades. Well, Hades was mentioned uh, in the Old Testament uh, many times. It's called Sheol or the place of the grave, Uh, Sheol uh, in the Hebrew, Hades in the Greek, same place, uh, the grave. But Hades, we know, is a place, a temporary place of incarceration somewhere in the center of the earth. Jesus talked about this place in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, when he talked about the rich man and Lazarus, okay, and the rich man, you know, was was a very lousy guy and never really helped anybody. He just kind of enjoyed his life, food, and just indulged himself in all kinds. And 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 Lazarus was a diseased beggar who was laid at the rich man's gate every day, but the rich man could care less, wouldn't help him at all. And in the course of time, they both died. Lazarus, being a believer, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, which was a place of paradise, a place of comfort in Hades. And then you had a big giant gulf like the Grand Canyon. On the other side, you had a place of torment where the rich man was taken because he was an unbeliever. And Jesus talked about these two compartments. Now, we're going to talk about this. I don't want to get ahead of myself and confuse you, uh, if I haven't already. But um, one of the compartments, the paradise side is called Abraham's bosom. Today is empty because when Jesus, before he ascended back to his father, he first descended into Hades and uh, set the captives free. But the other side is still very much in operation. All unbelievers still go. To the torment side of Hades. Now, I've gotten ahead of myself, so I might repeat some of this, but but bear with me, okay? Nobody is in hell right now. Hades, very much so, a lot of people down there. But nobody is in hell as, as of right now. The first people to be cast into hell will be the Antichrist and the false prophet, which will happen when Jesus returns to the earth to establish his kingdom after the tribulation period. You can read about that in Revelation 19, verse 20. The first people cast into the lake of fire into hell in the outer darkness are the Antichrist and false prophet. The next ones to be cast into the lake of fire will be Satan, and no doubt his fallen angels also, followed by all those, listen, followed by all those who refused to believe in Jesus Christ throughout human history. This judgment when all these unbelievers are resurrected from Hades, stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment, and are eventually cast into hell or the lake of fire, this will happen at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Turn to Revelation 20. You're going to get more than you bargained for tonight. By the time it's all over, you're going to have a deeper appreciation for spiritual warfare. Okay? And the extent that the enemy will go to to win which means he's not fooling around he's not playing games we better be serious too but i'm just going to read you from revelation what i just explained to you revelation 20 starting with verse 7 now when the thousand years have expired so the millennial kingdom is now over satan will be released from his prison he was chained at the beginning of the thousand years and so he was uh, chained up now the thousand year millennial kingdom is over and so he's released He's going to go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And what's going on here is a lot of people will be alive when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. They will have escaped the Antichrist. Believers now I'm talking about, and unbelievers. The unbelievers will be cast into Hades. But the believers will be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom with their physical bodies. Now, we'll have our glorified bodies. So we're not going to be marrying, having kids anymore. But they will have their physical bodies. They will get married, have children. Their children will have children. I mean, most of them are going to live the entire thousand years. Death is going to be very rare. So the world is going to be repopulated. But Satan has been bound. It's only been Jesus Christ. And because God has made us as free moral agents that have the ability to make a choice, and God wants us to make a choice, we're going to really want to follow it's only been jesus for these folks for a thousand years they've been forced to obey him he's the king he's been ruling with a rod of iron anyone steps out of line he pops them with the rod of iron and they're just they're gone off, off the earth but now they have a chance to choose whether or not they want to continue with the lord jesus christ as their king throughout eternity they have to make a choice and so satan is released he goes throughout the entire world, tempting people to follow him in one last great rebellion. He, he convinces millions. Uh, the number is so great, it couldn't even be numbered for the multitude of people who follow the devil against Christ in this final battle of Armageddon. It's amazing to me. And I think God allows us in part because for every person who said, why am I being punished for Adam's sin?" Why is God holding it against me for what Adam did? If I was in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have done that baloney. But here, God's giving billions of people an opportunity to prove them wrong. And after living with Christ for a thousand years in a perfect kingdom where righteousness has reigned, there's still so much evil in the heart of man that many decide to follow the devil in rebellion against Jesus. And so we read now, and so verse 9, who's, well, at the end of verse 8, uh, Gog and Magog gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So they surround Jerusalem to go to war against Jesus. That's where he has been enthroned. That was, is his capital. He's been ruling from Jerusalem visibly for a thousand years. But now they're, they've surrounded the city, okay? And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet, what? Are. Did you catch recently how the Pope said that there's no hell? Now, of course, the Vatican was backtracking so fast I'm surprised they didn't fall off a cliff. I mean, they're, they're you know. Of course, I haven't heard the Pope come out and say no 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 i was misquoted so he hasn't said a word about it okay and the way the quote was well uh unbelievers there's no hell The people just go out of existence well i'm assuming he's talking about annihilationism which teaches that when a person who is an unbeliever uh, dies without christ eventually they're going to be cast into the lake of fire but when they hit the lake of fire they burn up and go out of existence it's called annihilationism But here, it says that the the devil is going to be cast into the lake of fire right at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom. The same place where the Antichrist and false prophet are. They've been burning for a thousand years because they were cast in at the beginning of of the millennial kingdom. So they haven't gone out of existence. And Revelation 14 says, no unbeliever does go out of existence. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast, take his number, and basically reject Christ. So the devil is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. For I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. So all the people in Hades, unbelievers, have been resurrected and are all going to stand one by one before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire so this place of temporary incarceration called Hades is going to eventually be cast into the lake of fire with death which will no longer uh, affect the people of God Um, this is the second death well the first death is physical the second death is eternal and uh, it was Moody I think who said um, D.L. Moody who said um, unbelievers are born once and die twice die once physically die once eternally in the lake of fire christians are born twice and die once we're born physically born again spiritually and we only die physically and in this room there's a good chance we won't even see that physical death because when the lord comes for us the rapture will be out of here and we believe he's coming pretty soon so uh, verse 15 anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire Now, guys, I believe that after Jesus died on the cross, he descended into Hades, not hell. He descended into Hades, which is what Peter, I believe, is alluding to in verse 19. Why do I believe that? Well, because, first of all, what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus said, "...for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish," so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, I've heard numerous Bible teachers say, well, that was the garden tomb. Yeah, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That was just, you know, the garden tomb. Guys, the garden tomb is hardly the heart of the earth. Think about that, okay? I mean, it's hardly the heart of the earth. I believe it's Hades place in the center of the earth that would be the heart of the earth right and then of course i mentioned ephesians 4 where paul said before christ ascended back to his father he first descended into the lower parts of the earth set the captives free moses david isaiah jeremiah all the old testament saints that were in paradise because it was abraham's bosom they were being comforted because they were believers but they were still prisoners because their sins had not been atoned for yet And when Christ died on the cross, their sins were paid. He goes down, unlocks the gates, you might say, and when he ascended back to his father, he led all the saints to heaven with him. And now as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, I believe it is, for a person right now in this day and age to be absent from the body, Christian is to be present with the Lord. So we don't go into Hades. That's that's empty now. Abraham's bosom is empty. Uh, When a person dies... Today, as a Christian, their soul and spirit go immediately into the presence of the Lord. Their body is buried, returns to the dust of the earth, and that's what's resurrected when the rapture happens, all right? So back to 1 Peter 3, it gets better. You're saying, I hope so. But verse 19 again, So by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. And so, guys, for those who do believe that Jesus descended not into hell, but there's a lot of folks that understand it's Hades, but they still believe this verse is teaching that, yes, after he died on the cross, he descended into Hades, and he preached to the spirits. Who are they? They were the people that died in the flood. He's given them a second chance to be saved. Preach the gospel to them. Guys, let me just say this to you: that interpretation has no scriptural merit at all. At all. Nowhere in scripture do we read anywhere that God has ever given someone a second chance to be saved after they have died. In fact, just the opposite, Hebrews 9:27. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. After a person dies, there is no more hope for them to be saved, chance to be saved. Uh, They're just waiting judgment now. And again, we talked about it. They're in Hades and will wait to the great white throne judgment and that's where they will stand before the Lord and then they will be sentenced to hell. And uh, at that time, a degree of punishment will be assigned to them in hell depending on how wicked their life, the life they lived on the earth was. Now look, besides that, besides that, the word translated preached in verse 19 is the Greek word keruso. And the word keruso means to declare or herald an important announcement. One author put it this way, said, In the ancient world, heralds would come to town as representatives of rulers to make public announcements or precede generals and kings in the procession celebrating military triumphs, announcing victories won in battle, etc. Guys, if Peter was talking about Jesus preaching the gospel, he wouldn't have used the word keruso, which simply means to declare a victory or make an important announcement. He would have used the Greek verb euangelizo, which means to evangelize. Beside that, the word spirits. He went and preached to the spirits in prison is a word in the new testament that has never used the people never used the people and if peter was talking about jesus sharing the gospel again would have used a different verb but if he was talking about people that jesus preached to well he would have used the greek word soukai souls that's the word that's used of departed human beings that have died soukai souls Instead of using the Greek word uh, pneumosin, which means spirit. Pneuma is where we get our word spirit from. Right? Uh, In the Greek. So guys, what exactly is Peter talking about here? Well, I believe Peter is referring to spirits in the sense of fallen angels who did something so horrendous during the time of Noah. And we're going to see how all these events are tied to the time of Noah. That's significant. Okay, Everything that peter talks about in other places uh noah's name it all happened at the time of noah what happened at the time of noah well there were some spirits some fallen angels that did something that was so horrendous that during this time that god chained them in hades until the day of judgment until the day of judgment and that when jesus died he went into the into hades again the heart of the earth and declared his victory to these wicked creatures these fallen angels implying a battle he had won over their nefarious the plan. They, you know, This was, this was a, a plan hatched by their general and leader, Satan himself. And under his direction, these angels came to the earth to enact this plan to thwart the program and the ultimate plans of God Almighty, but God thwarted it. God thwarted it. Now to understand what I'm talking about, turn to Genesis 6. But again, something happened. In the days of Noah, the devil sent his fallen angels to the earth to do something, to defeat the plans of God. What were the plans of God? It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When Adam and Eve fell and God pronounces the curse, at one point he talks about how that he is going to send a deliverer from the seed of the woman. Again, a reference to the virgin birth. Because the women don't have seed. The man has the seed. So it was a reference of the virgin birth, Genesis 3.15. Of course, it was a prophecy that God was going to send a redeemer who would crush the devil's head, the serpent's head, right? In other words, the head means authority. Satan had stolen the world from Adam and Eve. It didn't belong to him. God gave it to Adam and Eve. But when they sinned, they turned over the world to the devil who became The world's new owner, man's new master. And God right there in the garden was saying, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to send a deliverer one day, a redeemer. And he is not only going to take back the world by paying for it. Now we're paraphrasing because we know what happened. But he's going to also, by his blood, deliver all those that Satan has taken captive. And uh, release them from his captivity that they might be children of God. We we go to Genesis chapter 6 to kind of look at this in uh, verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, if you want a full explanation of this, you have to go online and listen to our Genesis study, chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. I'm just going to encapsulate it because I'm I'm not going to get into the whole thing. But if you're really interested in the subject, go online, listen to the Genesis study, chapter 6, verses 1 to 12, because we really went into this in some detail. Brought out a lot of other things I can't get into tonight. But let me just say this. The phrase, sons of God, see it here in Genesis 6-2. The phrase, sons of God, appears in only three other places in in the Old Testament. Job chapter 1, verse 6, Job chapter 2, verse 1, and Job 38, verse 7. And guys, in each of these passages, the phrase sons of God is a clear reference to angels, so much so that the NIV simply drops the term sons of God and substitutes the word angels because that's exactly what's going on. And so they, they, in fact, I'll just read you, you know, Job 1, verse 6 out of the NIV One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. So, you know, it says in in my translation, the sons of God presented themselves. Well, the NIV knows that it's talking about angels, so it just put angels in there to make it clearer. But I believe what's in view here in Genesis 6 is that fallen angels came down to the earth and cohabitated with human women, which are called the daughters of men in verse 2. These fallen angels did this, came down from heaven, cohabitated with human women, daughters of men, in an effort to contaminate the human race with demon seed. So Messiah couldn't be born. It was a preemptive strike, an attempted preemptive strike to thwart the plans of God, to keep the Messiah from being born. Uh, Here's the plan, Satan said to his fallen angels. You guys go down and uh, you you gather to yourself uh, human women as wives, uh, you go into them and we will contaminate the human race with demon seed. Messiah can't be born from a contaminated race. It just won't happen. And that's how we will defeat the program of God. Now, this in and of itself, Genesis 6, uh, talking about the sons of God, which I believe is a clear reference to angels, daughters of men, means human women, cohabitating, okay, and so on. A lot of people don't agree with that. I, I firmly believe it's what the Bible's teaching. But That in and of itself, Genesis 6, wouldn't be enough to convince me that the first four verses are talking about fallen angels and demons coming down again to the earth to cohabitate with human women. That wouldn't be enough to convince me. What really drives this view home to me is that this incident is mentioned not once but three times in the New Testament. Jude mentions it once and Peter twice, one in each of his two epistles. So let's turn to Jude and there's only one chapter, so Jude one, and let's start with verse six. Jude one, verse six, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth, as an example, uh, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And the point Jude is making is that fallen angels left heaven, their proper domain, as uh, the New King James puts it, I think the um, NLT puts it, left their own home, and came to the earth to commit sexual immorality by going after strange flesh. But don't let that throw you. He uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an illustration of what he's talking about, because just as homosexual sex is unnatural, well, so is sex between fallen angels and human women. Now, those that disagree with that interpretation, let me just say this to you. Many wonderful uh, teachers, really solid teachers, pastors, professors, and so on, um, do not agree with what I just told you. They believe the sons of men, uh, the sons of God, is a reference to the ungodly line of Cain, daughters of men to the godly line of Seth. So you have unbelievers marrying believers. That's their interpretation. Well, I don't know of any unbeliever and believer who has gotten married that has produced strange offspring. But again, those that disagree with this, this interpretation that angels came down and cohabitated with human and women claim that angels are spirit beings. Spirit beings cannot have sex. They're spirit. They're not physical. Well, that's true, but they can take physical form. And they have many times in the Old Testament, not the least of which is Genesis 18. You have to turn there. You remember the story that one day two angels and the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance came to Abraham. And the, the mission was the angels were going to go on to Sodom and Gomorrah and wipe it up, but they had to deliver a lot and his family who were living in Sodom. And the Lord Jesus stayed back and, and, and continued to, to dialogue with Abraham. But when these two angels got to Sodom, the men of Sodom took them as human beings, and they wanted to know them carnally. It was so bad in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, homosexual, militant homosexuality was so uh, prevalent. But these guys, they did not think these men anything other than ordinary human beings. That's how much they could take the form of a human, these angels. Don't forget that very cryptic scripture in Hebrews 13, uh, verse 2. Uh, Be careful to entertain strangers. Give them hospitality. You never know when you're entertaining angels unawares. Wow. That's something to think about. But listen, guys, to say that angels are incapable of having sex with women, because that's the the thing. Uh, Angels can't have sex with women. Well, who said that? I didn't read, read anywhere in my Bible where actually God said that, I know they have verses they pull out, but I can refute those. But um, the Bible never says that angels can't take human form and have sex with women. In fact, history seems to prove that. I mean, there are many documented accounts. I've read a couple of them. There's many others. There's many documented accounts of women in the occult or in pagan religions that have had sex with demons. Now... People would say, but are you telling me they had children with these demons? Well, Genesis 6, verse 4 seems to indicate so. Let me read it to you. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into, into, it's just another way in the Hebrew of saying, had sex with the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. First of all, it's significant, guys, that when angels are referred to in Scripture, It's always in the masculine pronoun, he. They're always described as men, which is why they're called the sons of God, right? There's no women angels. Sorry, Hallmark. Sorry, uh, touched by an angel, people. There's no, biblically, there's no female angels, okay? They're all the sons of God. But these sons of God, angels, daughters of men, came together, had sexual relations, And they produced offspring. There were giants in the land in those days. The word in verse 4 for giants is Nephilim. And it's a word that literally means fallen ones. And I believe, personally, that these were half-human, half-demon, hybrid creatures. That Satan, once again, had his angels come down to the earth to try to commingle and corrupt the human race with demon seed. Why? So that the deliverer, the Messiah, could not be born, could not crush the serpent's head, could not take authority back from the devil, thwart him, conquer him, and so on, return humanity back to God, as it was in the Garden of Eden when they had fellowship with one another, and once again, where the earth was under the control of, it's always been under the control of God, but God honored the uh, transaction that Adam and Eve entered into, Adam really, uh, when he disobeyed God obeying the devil, and in the process, he transferred ownership of the world to the devil. And God honored that. It was a legal transaction. And so for God to take the world back, he had to send a redeemer who would pay the price with his own blood to redeem the world back to God, which is what Jesus did. But uh, this is spiritual warfare in a way most christians never realize it goes on so when you're going through a difficult time here and there throughout your day or week or month when you feel especially oppressed or depressed or just anxious or fearful you're not even sure why it's just you're just this darkness this cloud is hovering over you chances are you're going through a form of spiritual warfare call a few saints Get people praying with you and for you. I've seen it happen, and get enough people praying and all, it will break. Spiritual warfare takes a lot of different forms. This is the most incredible form, what Satan tried to do in thwarting the plan of God. If he had been successful, well, there's no way a Messiah, a Deliverer, could be born who is really himself half-demon. And that was Satan's plan. That was Satan's goal, all right? Now, uh, somebody said that his plan almost succeeded. No, it didn't almost succeed from a human standpoint. Look at oh boy, you know he almost got away with it. No, he didn't. God's on the, God's on the throne. Okay, but he went to a lot to you know corrupting. Look, let's go back in Genesis six. Read verse uh, verse seven, starting there. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth uh, was filled with violence. Uh, it says, Noah was a just man. It's a Hebrew word that means righteous. And we we know the Bible clearly teaches nobody can be righteous in God's eyes except by faith. So Noah was a believer. That's how he was righteous in the eyes of God, was by his faith. And as a result, these righteous people will live a righteous life. The Spirit of God is inside, and eventually the Spirit of God works his way out into your life, and your actions change, and so on. So uh, as a result of Noah's faith in the Lord, he lived a righteous life on the earth. Listen, at a time it was not easy to do so. Verse five: Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the world Noah lived in. Yet he walked with God because he purposed he was going to walk with God. Like we must purpose, we're going to walk with God. It won't happen by accident. You got to do it on purpose. But also, verse 9 says that Noah was perfect in his generations. The word perfect there comes from a Hebrew root that means uncontaminated. Uncontaminated. And guys, listen, Noah and his family may have been the only ones left on the earth that were still pure and uncontaminated from demon inbreeding. Think about that. Which would explain the flood and would explain with Jude and Peter are referring to. Let's read what Peter had to say in the subject. We'll read from 1 Peter 3 one more time, and then we'll uh, read the second uh, thing he said on this subject in his second epistle. But again, 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but uh, made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah. So something is going on in the days of Noah, right? Well, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. We'll jump down to 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Because Peter makes reference to this event or this time again. He said, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? If he didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to where? Hell, no. The Greek is not hell. It's Tartarus. That's the only place. It's not the common word for like a fire or uh, or hell. This is uh, a different Greek word, Tartarus, used only here. In the New Testament. So we really have nothing to compare it to. However, in classical Greek, the word appears and it may, it's a reference to the lowest part of Hades, apparently a special holding tank, if you will. In Hades, which is a prison in and of itself, if it, this would be like maximum security in a uh, in a penitentiary, where these angels are, are so vicious, so violent, they, are, they have been chained by God until the judgment of the great day. I think it was Judah that tells us this. That could be a reference to their judgment someday, probably is in part. But I think it also is a reference to the fact that at one point in the tribulation period, some angels are released from Hades, and in one hour they kill a billion and a half people. could be that these are the very angels that God chained in Hades. So vicious, so violent, that he purposely restrains them, but then looses them during a time of worldwide judgment for a time, and they go across the earth and kill a quarter of the earth's population. For if God did not spare the angels who sin, but cast them down into Tartarus, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And you can read the rest of that. Again, in both Peter's references, in 1 Peter 3 and in 2 Peter 2, he talks about angels and them doing something incredibly wicked during the time of Noah. And I I submit to you, they were combining demon seed. say, well, how did they do that? I don't know. I have no idea. But the Bible, to me, is clearly saying this that the angels were contaminating the human race with demoncy, But let me just take it one step further as we begin to wrap it up. I don't believe this demonic contamination was limited to the human race. I believe it involved the animals on the earth as well. And if that's true, it explains why God completely wiped out everything he had made, everything that lived on land, including man, all except for Noah and his family. Uh, The animals, the birds creeping things. He wiped them all out because Satan had corrupted, contaminated animals and people with demon seed. Again, Genesis 6, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect or uncontaminated in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. It was contaminated for all flesh. All flesh, in other words, animals and man, had corrupted their way or had been corrupted on the earth. Now, guys, there are many ancient myths, stories, legends, whatever you want to call them, of these demigods on the earth that were half man and half animal. And many historians believe that some of that, maybe all of it, is rooted in fact. Rooted in fact. There's there's evidence to suggest that not only were these these stories of these demigods, you've seen the mythology, the the half man, half horse, half man, half whatever, okay? Uh, There are those that believe that some of that was actually rooted in fact and could be pointing back to what, We read about in Genesis 6. In fact, it could be that this all came about, listen to me, as a result of genetic manipulation. How did that happen? Well, as man, and we're doing the same thing today, but as man back then opened more, mankind opened more and more uh, doors to the demonic, we're doing today. The more people get into the occult or pagan worship, uh, opening doors to the demonic realm, the more these demons are allowed to come into our country. What does Satan come to do? He comes to what? Steal, kill, destroy. He's the author of what? Confusion. As we look around our nation, do we see confusion, anarchy, lawlessness? Everything is breaking down. That's because the, the, the rebel, the number one rebel in the universe, the devil, is being given, well, man is inviting him into their minds into their lives, into their families. And the more families, more people that open doors to the demonic, the demons come in, suicide rates go up. See, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He'll he'll get you in bondage to alcohol, to drugs, whatever he can to give you a little high, and then he kills you with that very thing. People get into the occult for power. He gives them a little power, gets them hooked, and then he winds up destroying them. That's what he's all about. And we're seeing it more and more today. Uh, everywhere you look but back then i believe as as mankind descended more and more into lawlessness opening doors to the demonic with all this demonic worship and stuff what happened was and ancient cultures bear this out history tells us this that women would give themselves over to be hosts to you know the gods and they would be sacrificed well I don't think they were all sacrificed per se. I think a lot of these gals were given over to these gods, were nothing but demons, fallen angels, who then took their DNA, spliced it somehow with animal DNA or with angel DNA. I, I'm not, I can't tell how that works. Why was this? You know, okay, we understand. Uh, contaminating the human race with demon seed, keep Messiah from coming. But why all this other contamination between animals and human beings? Because Satan wanted to destroy a good creation, a creation that glorified God. Every day after creation, Genesis 1, God saw it was good. God saw it was good. God saw it was good. At the end of chapter 1, God stepped back, looked at all of his creation, and said it was all good. It glorified God. And Satan came in, and the first thing he does is he gets man and woman to fall, so now the human race is corrupt. Then he goes after the creation itself. And so, what does God do? He brings a flood to wipe out everybody, except Noah and his family, and starts afresh. When Noah and his family entered that ark, they were they were entering, you might say, a tomb, because they died to the ancient world who died around them. When they stepped out of that ark. Uh, a, a year later, they stepped into a brand new world. A brand new world. Because everything else had been wiped out. And God was starting fresh again. It's amazing. And keep that in mind. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But as they gave themselves more and more to these demigods or these fallen angels who they thought were gods, thinking what? They're going to have immortality or some promise. All the devil was doing was using their DNA because he couldn't take it by force. The devil can't force you to give yourself to him. He can tempt you. He can deceive you. But you have to willingly open yourself up to the devil. You have a free will. God won't violate your free will. He certainly won't let the devil do it. But people open themselves up willingly. And the devil takes control. And um, more and more people begin to be corrupted. More and more places on the earth. Until finally God said enough is enough. He stepped in, brought judgment It wiped everything out. Again, everything except Noah and his family. Now, guys, listen. The angels that Jude speaks of in verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. I believe they are the same fallen angels that Peter is speaking of in 1 Peter 3, by whom also Jesus went and preached or declared his victory to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, <laughs> those who tried to thwart the plan of God, when once the div- when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, Noah's wife and his three sons and their wives, were saved through water. And listen to me, though. All the while that Noah was building the ark, 120 years, it tells us, it took him and his sons to build this ark. All the while, Second 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah was preaching the gospel. I say, what do you mean preaching the gospel? Noah knew the gospel. At least he knew as much as God revealed in Genesis 3.15 that a Messiah, a deliverer, was coming who was going to crush the serpent's head and purchase everything back from the devil. So I think these folks knew a lot more about the gospel than we give them credit for But Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. While that ark was being built, Noah preached to his generation. They didn't accept it. They laughed at him, probably mocked him. Um, And, of course, when Noah and his family entered the ark, God sealed them in, brought the flood. Of course, they were singing a different tune then, but it was too late. They were all destroyed and so on. But uh, the statement in verse 20 of uh, 1 Peter 3. That Noah and his family were saved through water is not a reference to water baptism. What Peter is saying is that Noah and his family were saved through water in the sense that they were saved through the waters of judgment, or in other words, the flood, by being sealed in the ark, which was the type of Christ. And yet many point to Peter's next statement as proof that water baptism does save us. Verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Well, there you go. There you go baptism saves us when i was a young pastor i mean, really young i forgot it was only a few months i think i was in ministry um some woman older woman found out about me or found out about the ministry and one day i get a a letter in the mail and a track and this this lady uh christian she believed that you have to be you had to be water baptized to be saved and so she wanted to Straighten me out, because she didn't want me misleading people. I didn't want to mislead anybody, so she gave me a track which explained you—you know—people have to be baptized in water if they're going to go to heaven. And not only that, the track went on to explain the exact way you had to do it. You had to just—you couldn't just dip them in the water and bring them up. You had to dip them once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm reading this and I'm feeling like, well, Lord, I am I doing something wrong? Am I? Am I preaching? false gospel. Good heavens, I don't want to not teach the truth. and People go to hell. I was really burdened for the next two or three days. I was praying like crazy about it. And then one morning, about two or three days later, I open up my, my devotions, and I read 1 Peter, right, 321, which says there is also an antitype. An antitype is a uh, something that was used to foreshadow a reality that's coming. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Uh Uh-oh. What is Peter going to say, though? Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, first of all, the word baptism is just a word right out of the Greek, baptizo, just a transliteration, and simply means to immerse. Now, be careful. We've talked about this. Pretty much everybody, when they hear the word baptism or read the word baptism, the Bible assumes water baptism. That's the big one. That's the one most people know about. But the word simply means to immerse. You have to look at the context. What, what is the medium in, in which a person is being immersed into? Okay. Here, Peter is not, he's not using uh, the word baptism uh, in terms of a person being immersed in water. Uh, see you notice it says here baptism now saves us not the removal of filth from the flesh or in other words not the kind of baptism that you dip a person's body in water and it washes off some of the dirt on their body in other words water baptism i'm not talking about that kind of baptism peter says that's not what saves us no he's using it to denote another kind of baptism or immersion as when a person believes in christ and his resurrection and that person is immediately, instantly immersed into the body of Christ. In other words, he's a Christian. The Bible talks about when we accept Christ, we are placed in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. Like Noah and his family were hidden in the ark, sealed in the ark. So that judgment passed over them. Or in other words, you know, we are sealed in Christ. We are sealed in Christ. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. By the Holy Spirit. In fact, Peter is using Noah's Ark uh, figuratively to represent Christ. Just as Noah and his family were sealed in the ark and they were spared from the waters of judgment. That's the idea. Not that they were saved through water. I had, had a talk with a Jehovah's Witness years ago, and he pointed this verse out saying to me that it's teaching that we are saved through water. In other words, by being water baptized. But if the context doesn't say that, it says that Noah and his family were saved through the waters of the flood, the judgment of God, They were saved through it, how? By being sealed in the ark. And we are going to be spared coming judgment. Yes, tribulation judgment, but ultimately hell, if we are sealed in Christ. One author put it this way. I'll read this and we'll we'll close. He said that he was actually referring to a spiritual reality when he wrote, Baptism now saves us is also clear from the phrase, An appeal... To God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only baptism that saves people is dry, the spiritual one into the death as well as the resurrection of Christ, of those who appeal to God to place them into the spiritual ark of salvation safely. End quote. In other words, when you when you receive Christ, your Lord, you pray to receive Christ, you are immersed into Christ, you're sealed in Him, you'll never come into judgment. The world will go through judgment, but we will—we are not appointed to wrath because we are in Christ, okay? And so he ends chapter 3, talking about how we're saved through the good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And guys, that's exactly the culmination of what we're talking about. How Jesus came to the earth He died for our sins to redeem us out of Satan's grasp, to buy the world back, a world that he is coming someday to take charge of, Millennial Kingdom. But at the cross, he vanquished principalities and powers, uh, angels, fallen angels, Satan's forces. He triumphed over the devil and his demons so that they no longer have any power. The devil, he walks around like a roaring lion. He makes a lot of noise. But if you're in Christ, you are not working towards victory. You're working from it because if you're in Christ and if you're a Christian, you are. Everything Christ purchased at Calvary's cross is yours. We don't fight the devil in our strength. Jesus won the battle. Jesus vanquished principalities and powers, angels and so on. We are in Christ. So everything Jesus won, we are the recipient and beneficiary of. Remember that, when the devil gets you to think, there's no way you can have victory over whatever it is you're struggling with. I just can't have victory. I'm just defeated. That's it. I just it's hopeless. Are you in Christ? Well, yeah. Then you're already victorious. Start acting like it. By faith, draw on your on your victory, which is in Christ. And Jesus ascended back to the Father and sits at the right hand, and is coming back someday to take possession of what he's bought and paid for so we'll continue god willing next week in chapter four father we thank you for your word your word is truth we thank you lord that uh, even though um (laughs) we've uh, jumped around a lot and gotten to some kind of weird stuff we believe lord it's what your word is teaching on the subject give us grace to understand the depth of the warfare and the lengths that satan will go to to uh, bring us down destroy our walk, tear us from the arms of our Savior. And so, Lord, give us grace to walk in that victory, the one you've won, uh, by just staying close to you and uh, living by faith the life that we live. We don't live in ourselves, of our own strength. We live by faith in the one who died and gave himself for us. You live your life through us, we pray, Lord Jesus. So we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.